And I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to the end of the chapter. And Sam's going to be preaching after that. Mark 9, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can, in the next moment, say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks, Dave. Morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I lead our Uni Church congregation. It's a joy to be opening God's word with you uh, this morning as we explore these words of Jesus. The question for us this morning is, what does true greatness look like? What does true greatness look like? What would true greatness look like in your life? Does it look like reaching the peak of your field? Does it look like earning enough money to fulfill all your aspirations and dreams? Does it look like filling the MCG three nights in a row? What does true greatness look like? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus confront his disciples, confront us with a vision for true greatness in the kingdom of God, in life the way Jesus intends it to be. And greatness in the kingdom of God is something quite different to what we might think. So as we pick up the narrative of this passage, Jesus has just, uh, he's just freed a boy from a demon. Uh, it's drawn a big crowd. Lots of people want to see Jesus at work. But he wants to spend time teaching his disciples. So he takes them away into Galilee, a more solitary and quiet place. This passage really depicts Jesus as the, the patient rabbi, the teacher of his disciples. And this rabbi teaches his followers as they follow him about life in the kingdom, though they struggle to understand, they struggle to get it. Here's what he teaches them, what he tells them. Have a look at verse 31 uh, in your Bible or in the, in the news sheet. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has predicted his death to his disciples. Second time he's predicted his death and resurrection. And just like the first time, as you can see in verse 32, they don't understand. They don't get it. They don't yet understand that Jesus will establish his kingdom not by fighting an army or winning an election, but by dying, by being delivered over into the hands of men and three days later, rising from the dead. He's going to establish his kingdom not by exalting himself or elevating himself, but by lowering himself. He's not going to establish his kingdom by taking power for himself, but by giving his power for the sake of others. That's who the king is, and that's life in his kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, we don't seek to hold or exploit or accumulate power. No, we employ it for the sake of others, and that's true greatness. That's easier said than done, though, right? To use our power for the sake of others instead of for ourselves. So I wonder, what kind of power do you hold in your life? This is a room of people who hold a lot of different kinds of power. By power, I mean influence, decision-making, control, resources at your disposal. Power is the capacity or the ability to influence the behaviours of others or the course of events around you. 
Maybe you have power in your workplace. Staff you supervise, budgets you oversee, goals you set, meetings you influence, programs you manage. Maybe you have power at home as you influence those that you live with. Your bank account is power, right? Purchasing power, power to influence and impact your world and the world around you by how you use your money, whether in large amounts or small. Even your time is power, power to dedicate yourself to what you choose, power to accomplish, power to achieve. And in Jesus' kingdom, we use our power not for ourselves, but for others. True greatness is found in service. That's hard to do, though, because we live as people in Jesus' kingdom actually in two kingdoms. If you're a Christian, you live in two kingdoms at the same time. Maybe you've, you've heard the phrase of the now and not yet of being a Christian, of living in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world that's infected by sin, that's perishing, that will one day pass away, still affects us. That's still where we live. We still have sin in our lives and are affected by sin in the world around us. We live in the kingdom of this world. But we also live in the kingdom of God that began with Jesus' first coming. As he arrived at the start of Mark's gospel, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. That's the message that Jesus came with. He established a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we live in that kingdom which will never end, which will endure forever with Jesus as the king, as the center of the kingdom. And so we live split between these two kingdoms, these two realities, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And we feel this, we feel it in the wrestle inside us for our power, for the use of our power. Right? The old self, the self that belonged to the kingdom of this world, wants to hold on to power, wants to use it for selfish gain, hoard it, maximize it, make the most of it. The new self, the new creation, belonging to the kingdom of God, wants to lay down our power for the glory of Jesus and the sake of others. And so we wrestle inside ourselves with what to do with our power. If you know Lord of the Rings, right, we're like Gollum and Smeagol, torn to the point of split personalities inside us, our desire to do right and to do selfish evil. So I wonder, in your own wrestle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, who's winning? That, that inner wrestle, that conflict in what to do with the power that we hold shapes the next part of Mark chapter 9. As we see Jesus' disciples struggling to let go of their old self and live in the kingdom life that Jesus is calling them to. So we're gonna see two ways that the disciples struggle to understand life in Jesus' kingdom. First, uh, from verses 33 to 37, we're gonna see the first way that they don't get it. It's just not computing in their minds, right? 
Now, I'm familiar with this experience, maybe you are as well. Uh, I have the experience of something just not computing in my mind, and Ronnie shares it as well, though we're both uh, well-educated, reasonably intelligent people. As soon as someone begins explaining the rules of a board game to me, <laughs> my mind goes instantly into sleep mode. It's like the words just come in one ear and go out the other, like a smell in a cartoon. I just, I cannot compute as they explain the rules of a board game. As soon as someone says, oh, it's turn-based and it's cooperative and there are resource tokens, <laughs> I'm instantly just dissociating, my mind's wandering around through the clouds. It's like the wrong ends of a magnet trying to touch together. That's a bit like what happens to the disciples here, I think. Jesus says to them, I will lay down my life and three days later I will be raised. And the disciples kind of look at him and look at each other, confused faces, and immediately start arguing about which of them is the greatest. Mark's using irony here, right? Which of these 12 random fishermen who Jesus chose for nothing in themselves, which of them will be the greatest? This is a very un-Australian argument for a start, right? This is a bunch of poppies arguing about who's tallest. Mark is using irony to make a point. It happens again in chapter 10, we'll see in a few weeks. Jesus tells them that he will be mocked, spat on, flogged and killed. And how do they reply? They ask to have the best seats next to him in glory. Mark's using this irony as a, a kind of a literary device to show us how much the disciples are missing the point of life in Jesus' kingdom. But we are not going to miss the point. These guys, they want to be considered the greatest, the most important, the best. And Jesus' reply to them, his patient teaching to them, is one of his most iconic teachings. Look at verse 35. If you're a kind of highlight in the new sheet person, then verse 35 is, is the heart of this passage. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. To be first, you must be last. To be first, you must be last. One commentator, uh, R.C. Sproul, he wrote this about the teaching of Jesus. <clears throat> this is a paradox, but Jesus used this rhetorical tool again and again. If you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. And if you want to be great, you have to suffer. He who is first shall be last, and he who is last shall be first. And the way to greatness is the way of service. If we want to be great, we must be the greatest servants we can be. Jesus doesn't instruct his disciples to abandon the pursuit of greatness. He doesn't tell them, here or anywhere, that they shouldn't aspire to be great. He recognises that the pursuit of greatness, right, of, of good productivity and creating an impact on the world, that, that's a good thing. That's a God-given, God-created thing. It's in our created nature to seek greatness. 
But like every created thing, our desire for greatness is distorted, it's warped by sin into something that's quite against God's desire for us. Our pursuit of greatness has been damaged by sin. From seeking greatness in God's eyes to seeking greatness in the eyes of people. We care more about how our friends or our social media, our competitors view us than how God views us. We pursue the forms of greatness that are, that are visible, that are tangible, that are measurable in numbers, that are rewarded with high earning or rewards or recognition. And our hearts turn away from the greatness which we were made for. Greatness which is hidden. I took a leadership profile test once, like the, you know, the Myers-Briggs, one of those kind of profile tests which aid kind of self-understanding. And this test outlined our sources of motivation as a leader. And the top result for me was competition. It was a bit confronting. There were some helpful insights in the book and it was intended to help me be a better leader, but it also, to be honest, confronted me with a diagnostic of the old self in me, of sin in me. I like to win, even if winning requires someone else losing. That's not the picture of greatness in the kingdom. Jesus says that true greatness is not striving to be first while others come second or third or fourth. No, true greatness is willingness to be last, to, to serve, to send others ahead. Greatness is not being praised by others, it's serving others. Rather than calling us to abandon our pursuit of greatness, Jesus reorients, he re-centers our pursuit of greatness towards true greatness. Jesus would transform your pursuit of greatness from something selfish to something beautiful. So I wonder, what's the greatness that you are pursuing in your life. If you're a note taker, why not write down what you think this might be in your life? In your, in your career, your vocation, in your family life, in your children's lives, in your bank balance, in your retirement plans, what's the greatness that you're pursuing in your life? My guess is that, like for me, for you, the greatness that you're pursuing in your life will be an expression of that wrestle between the new self and the old self. And Jesus doesn't condemn the quest for greatness. He transforms it. Be great, he says, but the path to greatness is down, not up. This is uh, Henry Nouwen. Maybe you're familiar with his writings. He was a priest, uh, a theologian, a lecturer, famous for his intellect. He taught at uh, Yale and Harvard. He was extremely upwardly mobile in his vocation and he was climbing fast. Yet he wrestled uh, with self-doubt and frustration and with his own ambition. 
And then as he approached the peak of his intellectual and professional powers, Henry spent a short period at uh, L'Arche, uh, a residential community for people with profound developmental disabilities. He was deeply impacted by belonging to that community. And almost overnight, he left his career behind to become a chaplain and a personal carer at L'Arche, where he remained for the rest of his life. Instead of global impact and prestige, he gave himself to one person at a time. People who could not reciprocate. He heeded the words of Jesus. Anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. Now and wrote this. He said, the temptations of being relevant, spectacular and powerful are real temptations and stay with us all our lives. They are strong because they play directly on our desire to join others on the upwardly mobile road. But when we are able to recognise these temptations as seductive attempts to cling to the illusions of the false self, they can become instead invitations to claim our true self, which is hidden in God alone. When we find ourselves able to continue to serve our fellow human beings, even when our lives remain the same, even when few people offer us praise, and even when we have little or no power, we come to know ourselves as God knows us, as sons and daughters hidden in God's love. Jesus transforms our quest for greatness. Be great, he says, but the path is down, not up. And these disciples, with their divided hearts, split between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, just like us, they need more help to understand. They still don't get it. And so Jesus brings a child who's playing nearby, beckons the child over, takes the child in his arms, and he says to them, this is verse 37, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Like those whom Henry Nouwen served with profound disabilities, Jesus took up this child as a picture of those who cannot pay you back for what you do for them. In a, in a utilitarian sense those who don't offer any strategic return on your time or resources. Jesus called us to serve the least because in serving the least, we serve to please God and not to win worldly greatness or acclaim. It's what Jesus himself did, of course, in the gospel, right? Philippians 2, Christ didn't use his equality with God for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to power for himself. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus' path to greatness is a path down into death. Jesus employs his power for the sake of us when we had nothing to offer in return. Jesus' disciples, walking with him and you and me, 
are slow learners. Mark's, Mark's irony continues. He kind of doubles down on his ironic depiction of the disciples here as they get it wrong again immediately. Verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. So they jostle for greatness amongst themselves. And now they jostle for greatness in competition with people outside their group as well. They're trying to climb the ladder of greatness, climbing over one another, and now climbing over people even outside their band of disciples who were ministering in Jesus' name. The the irony is so rich here, right? Because these same disciples, just half a chapter earlier, had literally failed to cast out a demon. And now they're complaining to Jesus that someone else is able to do it who's not one of them. But Jesus isn't jealous about people using his name to cast out demons. Go for it, he says. Good on them. If they're doing good, if God is granting them the power to drive out demons in my name, they can fill their boots. True greatness is not jealous for recognition. Do you celebrate other people's wins or do you envy them? I struggle with this. Maybe it's that competition thing in me. When friends in ministry receive speaking invitations to great conferences, a couple of my ministry friends have started signing book contracts. Every time that happens, my old self and my new self start a new round of wrestling within me, right? But in the kingdom, there's no space, there's no need for envy or competition. It's all about the glory of Jesus anyway, right? Not about our own glory. So it doesn't matter who gets the wins as long as the wins give glory to Jesus. Jesus transforms the quest for greatness. He transforms your quest for greatness. And the path he teaches us is a path down, not a path up. So what would it look like for you to aspire to true greatness, to kingdom greatness? How might you become the very least and a servant of all in order to become first in Jesus' eyes? The final verses of our passage remind us, kind of shockingly, confrontingly, of just how high the stakes are. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. 
the stakes of entering the kingdom are so high. Thank goodness this is not a literal encouragement from Jesus to chop off body parts, otherwise we'd all be getting around without any hands or feet or eyes. No, Jesus is urging his followers that there is nothing more important than entering God's kingdom, his upside-down kingdom of, of service and true greatness. Don't let anything get in the way of living this kingdom life. There are so many things that would get in the way. All those expressions of worldly greatness, money, influence, comfort, fame, whatever, all those things, they desperately try to push in the way of Jesus and pull you away from living the kingdom life that he's made you for. Never let them. If your money causes you to be greedy and mistreat people, give it away. If your career is in exploiting people rather than serving people, give it up. Would you reduce your work commitments, even at the cost of possible promotions or excellence or your boss's approval, in order to spend more time discipling your children or caring for your aging parents or visiting prisoners or volunteering your time for a cause in service of those in need? Would you change your career goals, change the course you're studying so that you could spend your life working for the maximum service of others, not for the maximum accomplishment or earning? Would you give your career away entirely to exercise the gifts that God has given you in full-time ministry or cross-cultural mission? If the ministry that you do here at church is about getting recognised or admired, stop doing that ministry. Do something that is unseen, unrecognised, except by God. If your TV causes you to sin, chuck it out. If your social media causes you to become bitter and jealous, delete your accounts. If your devices cause you to ignore your kids or neglect your prayer life, get rid of them. Be like this guy. Isn't he cute? It's, it's a real animal. It's not a Pokemon, though it looks like one. Uh, it's called an ermine. And they live in Europe. Uh, and in winter, they grow this, this beautiful, spectacular uh, white coat. And through the kind of medieval, the Middle Ages, Renaissance times, their pure coats were really highly prized to make robes for royalty because they were so pure, so white, so unsoiled. And so the legend grew in that time that in order to hunt an ermine, the hunters had to find the ermine's den, the entrance to his hole in the ground, and when he was out looking for food, to rub mud around the entrance to his hole. Then you set the hounds on the ermine, he flees for his hole, and when he reaches and finds it covered in mud, he turns so committed to the purity of his coat that he would rather fight and die than soil his coat. The phrase, death before defilement, 
came to be associated with these animals, which is a pretty great summary of these last verses, really. Don't compromise. Don't let yourself be soiled by sin. The stakes are too high. The stakes are eternal. In Jesus' kingdom is eternal life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. No longer wrestling with the old self. No longer split between two kingdoms, but with him forever. The stakes are too high. Life outside of the kingdom is hell. It's separation and punishment forever. The stakes are high. So what about your life and your search for greatness? Would you aspire to true greatness, kingdom greatness, found in serving others? Would you be the very last and the servant of all in order to be first with Christ? I'm going to pray that we would. So would you pray that with me? Jesus, our King, let us live the kingdom life that you call us to. Let us follow the pattern of Jesus to take up our cross and follow him. Help us to find true greatness in serving, in being last. We pray, Lord, that as we do, you would be glorified in us, that we would find true greatness and true kingdom life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.